Just a minute. I'm coming. FBI, open up! Just a minute. Hello, everybody. This is Legal Man. Welcome to the show. This is going to be a good episode. I'm going to explain to people what the general welfare clause is and ending power and the necessary and proper clause and how they kind of fit together and why the interpretation we're all given and the argument itself is a pointless. Even if they were right, they ultimately lose because the Constitution then would have absolutely no authority. And for people who don't know me, I'm a lawyer. Practiced for more than 30 years. I'm America's most trusted and beloved lawyer because I tell them the truth. Truth like in this show about the absolute fantasy world that the Constitution is. See, I was a constitutional conservative for years and years and years. And then I figured out the scam. I got the Internet. And after a few years of having the Internet, I figured it out. Constitutional conservatism is a scam. It's a scam to keep you on a tax-paying plantation, believing you're in a freedom machine. And when I figured that out about 20 years ago, I became a self-certified master practitioner. And I recently gave myself a Lifetime Achievement Award just for doing all these great podcasts. <laughs> all right, enough fooling around. Let's get that to show going. So I want to do an episode and kind of start explaining some of these terms people hear all the time. Like you hear the General Welfare Clause, Spending Power Authority. You hear all these things and they justify all this crap through necessary and proper. And they bamboozle people. And there's a lot of reasons why the big government people, they love this general welfare clause concept and this spending power authority because ultimately it just means that they believe they have the power to spend and regulate on any issue they want. Because any issue can be turned into a national issue. They have national laws with regards to paying child support. Oh, it's a national problem. Okay, so you turn it into a so-called problem. If the thing exists in more than one location, then you can turn it into a so-called national problem. By using this kind of nonsense, the concept of a limited government is completely and totally obliterated. And the argument against it is just obvious as hell. But there's so many other arguments. And... I want to try to give people an idea that a lot of people don't understand that this is actually going on, that there are tons and tons of people, so-called lawyers and legal so-called scholars, who push for this kind of nonsense that the federal government should have the authority to do pretty much anything. And (laughs) if you don't think that's the case, then I want to give you just a little tiny bit of taste for it. This is something called the Lost General Welfare Clause. It comes out of a William and Mary Law School review, and it's written by a guy named David Schwartz. So it's volume 63, issue 3. Anybody wants to look it up, it'll come up. And this is the kind of thing that he argues for and believes that should happen. It starts it out like this. Does the Constitution empower Congress to issue a nationwide mask mandate in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, to require individuals to take steps to prevent further environmental degradation, to address a nationwide pattern of violence against women? The answer to these questions are no, or probably no, according to the questionable ideology of enumerationism. (laughs) Another ism here. The idea that the Constitution confers only limited enumerated powers on the national government and thereby denies the power to address all national issues. See? They want to turn this into a totally different kind of document. 
They want to turn it into a document where they can legislate on all so-called national issues like violence against women and anything else woke they care to shove in there. And guys like this, they're not very honest, see? They say that the settled interpretation departs from the literal meaning of the text. And then he says, Clause 1 as a whole provides as follows, with the general welfare clause italicized. And then he proceeds to post it out in slightly smaller font in the middle to quote it and cite it. And it's, this is it. I'm going to read it. The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. That's it. But he puts a period there. It doesn't have a period there. It has a semicolon. But he completely and totally misrepresents the clause as though it's a standalone clause. See, this is a guy writing in a law review article pretending to be scholarly. And a mistake like that, that's not a mistake, see? And the editors of the law review, under no circumstances will they make a miss like that. I was on law review. (laughs) They're not going to make a miss like that. You go back and you check the quote, and you can see that it's not a period. It doesn't end with a period. It has a semicolon. But by making it a period, he starts to create his own argument. Of course, his argument ignores all sorts of other things. And what I want to first do in this show, before I show you a couple of cases, things like that, with regards to kind of things like the general welfare clause, spending power authority, and something called necessary and proper clause, I want to read a little bit of the actual text and give you some basis so you can understand where the analysis comes from. Because there was absolutely no debate about this really whatsoever up until 1936. All the way through 1936, there was nothing going on. Everybody understood what this was about. The government didn't have the authority to do all this crazy shit and just spend on any and everything. Now, they'd already expanded it out in all sorts of other ways and mostly using interstate commerce and some other made-up things. But for the most part, when it got to the Supreme Court, it would be turned away. Not because they probably didn't want to do it, but because it's just so obvious. See, it's just so obvious. But after 1936, the court completely changed because FDR came up with his court packing scheme. And so they went from cases like Butler, which I may cover a little bit later in another episode, where they shot it down and said, obviously, this can't be maintained. And it's a violation of an encroachment in to the state's powers, that the federal government's a government of limited powers, enumerated powers. So what does that mean? Well, all this stuff comes from Article 1, Section 8 in the Constitution. And I still think everybody should read uh, the Constitution because it's short. But certainly you should read basic sections of it. People always want to act as though it's a contract. It's not a contract. Nothing about the Constitution is a contract. I've covered that in depth on many, many, many different podcasts. But if it really was a contract, under no circumstances would the federal judiciary be able to pour people out for failing to have standing to make complaints. Because if it's a contract and they're a party to it, then you can't pour me out and say I don't have a right to bring a lawsuit. But they do all the time because it's not a contract. And there's so many other reasons it's not a contract. But to the extent it is a contract in some kind of fanciful uh, imaginary world, no court anywhere in the United States would ever interpret Section 8 of Article 1, which gives Congress its different enumerated powers, to be a grant of power to spend 
whatever it cares to and to regulate whatever it cares to for the general welfare. Absolutely nothing about legal construction and interpretation can ever justify such an insane reading. And I'm going to show you some basic reasons why. If you pull up Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, this is where Congress gets these powers. And it says that, as I just read, the Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, semicolon, but all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States, semicolon. And then it starts a long list. These are the enumerated powers that he calls enumerationism. <laughs> Things like to borrow money on the credit of the United States, to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with Indian tribes. That's the interstate commerce cause right there. Um, why would I need to even start down this list? to borrow money on the credit of the United States. I don't understand. Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Okay. Why would I need to then further go down in a contract language to say that they can borrow money on the credit of the United States? Well, how else are you going to pay the debts? How else would you incur a debt? Except to have debt, right? Why would I need to say any of this stuff? To regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states. Why would I need to have that in there if they're providing for the general welfare? This doesn't make any sense. To establish a uniform rule of naturalization, uniform law on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the United States? Well, of course you can. How does that not provide for the general welfare? See? And of course, it's never defined. <laughs> it's never defined. Anyone who looks at the list that's in Article 1, Section 8, different enumerated powers will see that to say that you'd have to have these additional things to establish post offices and post roads? Why would I need to have a specific statement like that in a contract if they can lay and collect taxes and provide for the general defense and make all laws necessary and proper for doing so? Why? Why would I need to have that? And of course, the general welfare clause, as we're discussing, what actually happens is they go through this thing with all these different semicolons. And the very last one that has a semicolon in front of it has an and in front of it. So you've got this long listing of things. And then it says, semicolon, and to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. So what they do, in effect, when they tell you about the General Welfare Clause is they simply read out everything that has a semicolon from uniform throughout the United States all the way down the list until you get to the last one, and then they read to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. Because if you just simply look at it, why would you do anything else? The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. And I'm just going to skip down. And to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by the Constitution and the government of the United States, or any department or officer thereof. Why would I need anything else? What in that list is not included in provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States and to provide all laws necessary for doing so? There's nothing. 
Why would you need to have something like to raise and support armies? Why would I need that if I can uh, raise and collect money, taxes, and regulate for the common defense? How is raising an army not part of that? How about to provide and maintain a navy? That's also in there. Why would I need that? What possible reason would there be for that? To make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces. Why would I need that? How can that possibly not be covered by provide for the common defense? How? See, the provide for the common defense, that's never litigated. It's simply never litigated. Why? Well, because everybody knows they can provide for the raising of an army and all the other things. Why? Because all, they have all these powers to provide and maintain a navy, to make rules in, for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces, to raise and support armies, <laughs> to provide for calling forth the militia, to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia, and for governing such parts of them as may be employed in the service of the United States. <sighs> Why would you need all those internal statements of what specifically they can do if you already have the statement that they can provide for the common defense? All of that is already subsumed by the idea of common defense. It just is. And see, you never hear that argument. All you hear is general welfare clause. Well, why about the common defense clause? Why do we have to worry about it? Well, that doesn't ever get litigated for a couple of reasons. One, the courts will tell you that you have absolutely no standing whatsoever to sue about it. But more importantly, everybody just assumes you can because they already have all these other things in there that specifically say they can. Well, there's also a bunch of specific things inside here that say what they can do with regards to the so-called general welfare. <laughs> there just are. And if you're going to say that they can make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution any of the foregoing powers, and then you're going to say that they have the power to regulate for the general welfare, then you just don't need anything else. And that's what the interpretation is they try to give it. But it simply reads out all the stuff in between. And there's a very, very specific rule in contract law where if a term like this. It's not just one term. It's not like you're missing some clause in a sentence. You're talking about the entire section of enumerated powers that's then referenced by the make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. Well, why would the foregoing powers exist? Why would you need all this duplication? Makes no sense. Why would there have been debate about it? Why? Why would they need any debate? They're just going to have a constitution that just says they can do whatever they want for the so-called common defense and the general welfare. Well, there's nothing whatsoever that limits the government in that case. All of the litigation around it would be utter nonsense. Why would the courts have found it so clear for so long that, of course, it's limited? Why? <laughs> None of it makes any sense together. There's no possible way to read the document and have this crazy list of things where they're each about general welfare or common defense, and yet they're specifically mentioned. There's no reason to do that if the general welfare clause actually means that. But it doesn't mean that. And if you look at the simple statutory construction, even the most general statutory construction, you see that with a bunch of semicolons like this, what it's saying is that, look, they can lay and collect taxes and imposts and pay the debts and provide for the common defense and the general welfare, so long as it's relating to 
these enumerated powers to borrow money, to regulate commerce, to establish uniform naturalization, to coin money, to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting, to provide for post offices and post roads. Why would you need something to say to establish post offices and post roads? Why? That doesn't make any sense. Why would I have to have a specific grant of power to provide for a Navy and to raise and support armies if the thing is empowered generally to provide for the common defense? Why? How? Under what circumstances could that ever make any sense? See, it can't. And that's why they simply read all that stuff out, and then they do things like that Schwartz guy did. They put a period on the end of it, and then they run around and they start interpreting it. And they start pulling up stupid crap from here and there, different letters and all sorts of other crap from different people. Who cares what any of those things say? If the document provides the government with the unlimited power to do whatever it cares to for the so-called general welfare, it's not a limited government in any form or fashion. It's just not. And there's no history at all that indicates that. And there'd be nothing whatsoever for the people to argue about. It's not what they did. It absolutely has nothing to do with the document. Nothing. And yet, it's continued. And people write articles about it. And now judges push this same kind of crap. And now, for the most part, they do simply spend on any and everything they care to. And they justify it based upon either this general welfare clause, which is the spending power authority, or they justify it on the interstate commerce clause. And they just call it interstate commerce. But... The distinction between laying collecting taxes for the benefit of the common defense and general welfare as a distinction as opposed to regulating, it's completely nonsensical. And that's another one they use. Well, if this was about regulating, it also meant that they could regulate, which is what they want to interpret it to be, then you wouldn't need these other additional things with regards to the military. To declare war, why do we need that specifically stated in there? If they're providing for the common defense to raise and support armies, why would I need to say that if they already have the authority to do it? To provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia? That militia was pretty much the only thing that existed. Why would you need to say that if you, they have the power for the common defense? Why would they need to say that they can constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court? What's the reason? Why would you put it in? <laughs> None of it makes any sense. There's no possible way you can have a contractual interpretation of this where literally the entire Article 1, Section 8, the vast majority of it, is just read away as, as surplusage and duplicative of the power to have general welfare and common defense spending. There's almost impossible to know what wouldn't be included in that. And to try to distinguish between taxing and regulating is preposterous. If I say, driving your car, we're not going to regulate it. We're just going to tax it. We're just going to tax it. If you want to drive a car, it's $100,000 a year. That's not a regulation. That's not a prevention from you doing that. You just have to pay the money. That's all. Is that a regulation of it? Of course it is. And the Supreme Court itself has held very many times, and of course it's obvious it's held that it is true, that the power to tax is the power to destroy. And if you can tax something, you just tax it away. That's the same thing as regulating. If you just make it impossibly expensive to do, well, then you wreck it. You destroy it. It's the same way they support industries. 
the same way they destroy different types of competition in business, the way they support different businesses. Because taxing things is clearly regulation. All this idea that the general welfare clause provides anything besides simply a description of the fact that if they're going to do any of these things they've been empowered to, which is this long list of things in Article 1, Section 8, then they have to do it still. Ultimately, they can only spend the taxes and stuff for the common defense and the general welfare. They can't do it for individual purposes. Well, of course, they do it for individual purposes now, too. They give you some kind of specific tax break. Just look in the tax code. You'll see. All sorts of individual industries and everything else. How, how does that possibly make any sense with paying taxes and raising taxes? Anything else for the general welfare when it's just strictly a very small group of people is benefited by the tax? How? How does it work? It doesn't make, see, none of it makes any sense, people. It's, none of it's true. They're operating totally and completely outside any bounds that were ever even theoretically granted to them. And as I've said again and again, there's no court in the nation you could ever put a document like this if you instead of saying Congress, you gave the name of some corporation and you change these things into individual names and you put the same information in front of them, that same clause. There's absolutely no chance in hell that any court would say that what this did was to give them the overall power to do whatever they wanted for the common defense and general welfare of the corporation and all the people involved with it and touched on it because it simply violates every rule of construction. That's all it is. There is no explanation for why all these other things are necessary. They're all completely and totally duplicative of the original statement of general welfare and common defense. (laughs) Every single one of them. And that's the problem with the argument. That's the fundamental problem with the argument is that it has absolutely no real basis and no courts took it seriously. It was never really even raised until the 1930s, and then at that case, they were all thrown out once FDR was trying to regulate all this crap and pass all this stuff, and the courts were just tossing it all out because it's just so obviously unconstitutional. It's just, it's not a close call, and then ever since then, then we start getting the Supreme Court cases, and that's when the commies have kept pushing on this stuff, and now we have this supposed argument going on about whether or not it's true or should be true, and guys writing this stupid crap like this recovering the lost general welfare clause. See, that's what you get. <laughs> and once you have that, see, once you have that, there's no way you can stop them. They will just continuously clip and chip away at it because the issues are not being honestly discussed. You ask them, where do they get the authority to spend any money on this? And they just tell you the general welfare clause. Because apparently tons and tons of people believe, because now the courts have led everyone to believe, that the government does have the right to simply spend money, raise taxes, and spend money for the general welfare, however it cares to. <laughs> I did just, that's it. That's what they now believe. And they teach it in schools. Uh, obviously, tens of millions of people, maybe a couple hundred million people, believe it. And if someone reads that thing like I just showed you, that so-called clause, and they put a period on it. So it's all just deception. And what's the penalty for any of this? Nothing. There's no penalty for any of it ever. See, So that's why it happens. And that's why the idea that you can vote your way out of this in any form or fashion is a fantasy. 
See, there's no example anywhere in the world of people voting for different politicians under a system and getting freer and freer and having the government shrink. There's no example of that. There's no example of our country where the government shrank over the last 250 years. It just doesn't happen. It's true. They Sometimes they have a slightly smaller budget every once in a while, some little de minimis nothing. But it's right back the next time. And there's no 10-year period where anything like that happens. It always just grows and grows and grows. And, of course, all three branches are in on it, the president, the Congress, and the courts. So when they all collude together like that to give these phony baloney interpretations, there's nothing you can do about it. See, there's nothing you can do about it inside the voting system because the system itself is pushing for it. But if you think that the general, so-called general welfare clause gives the government the authority to make all laws necessary and proper for spending and regulating the general welfare of the United States, then there's no way to make sense of the document. And yet it's all ignored. And even worse for the case of the so-called interpretation, let's just assume that that's even a possibility. That that's a possibility, that that could be it. Well, a huge number of people disagree, and there's absolutely nothing in the document itself that establishes it. So at a very bare minimum, bare minimum, the document itself will fail for ambiguity because you either have a complete and total lack of a meeting of the minds between the people who so-called agree to this, which they don't even exist, they're all dead, but assuming it was the so-called people here today, you can't get any agreement about what this document means, about this idea of the general welfare that's necessary and proper. That's the spending power authority. <laughs> you don't get any agreement about it. So where do you look? Where do you find the agreement? You can't. This is the point for all of it. This is why it's not a contract. This is why the government has no legitimate authority. Because the document itself, there's no agreement whatsoever on what it says. <laughs> you can't have a voluntary agreement of people to be ruled by a government under a document when there's no agreement as to what the document says or means. That can't ever make sense. It's as nonsensical as the idea that you can fight a civil war to hold a voluntary union together. That cannot happen. It doesn't matter what the reasons are. You can never, ever, ever have a group of people being voluntarily ruled under a document that they do not agree to the interpretation of what the document means. Well, if it's a clear-cut case in their mind that it does mean that, and all this shit that's in there is meaningless, okay, well, then there's no agreement because no one ever agreed to that. That's all. So you don't have the consent of the people to be regulated and ruled under this document or any government that's based upon this document because there's no agreement about what the document says. There's no agreement about what power was supposedly given to the government. None. <laughs> Do you see that? It's such an important point because what it does is it takes all these arguments that they want to raise and say, well, we've got this and they want you to look at this letter and that letter and this interpretation and that interpretation. It's like, okay, Fine. I will grant that they are completely and totally valid potential interpretations. Okay? Fine. All they do is prove that there is no consent 
because there is no agreement as to what the document says. There's, there's no general principle of law. There's no specific law. There's no concept in the law that says that you can agree to something by agreeing to two different interpretations of a document. There is no such thing. There's no contract basis. There's nothing. There's no way you can give consent to something that you have a fundamental misunderstanding of or a fundamental disagreement about what the document is, says, and does. And that's what we have. So there is no consent to the government. (laughs) It's that simple. And a vote based upon the document itself can't ever overcome that because the document itself doesn't have any authority unless the people agree to what the document's going to do. So you can't say, well, we're going to override you and your interpretation of the document by having a vote held under the authority of the document. No, we're discussing whether the document itself is going to have any authority to empower a government. And we disagree about what that document is going to empower. So there's no such thing as a vote under the document to somehow overcome that problem. Do you see that? It's very, very fundamental. And again, it's a very simple argument. You can either use the simple arguments I've given you that as a simple matter of grammar and syntax, the reading they give it is not true. It's just not true. The general rule of contract interpretation, which would render all of that enumerated powers complete and total what they call surplusage, unnecessary, It's completely impossible to understand what the point would be of arguing about the wording of these different enumerated powers and even calling them enumerated powers. If, in fact, they're already subsumed by the common defense and the general welfare, which they all are. And so there's absolutely no possible way for them to legitimately justify their interpretation. But even if you want to grant that they could theoretically do that, By doing that, what you show is that the document itself fails for ambiguity since there's two such obvious contradictory interpretations that are open from the document itself and or that you don't have a meeting of their minds, that the people have complete and total differences in agreements that are fundamental and the document fails because this is the heart of the document. What will the government be empowered to do? This is a document setting up a government. So if the people don't have any agreement about what the document supposedly empowers the government to do, there's absolutely no possible way to say that the document is valid. It's just not, under any circumstances, because there's no way to have held a vote about it. How can you hold a vote? What can you possibly interpret from any vote on it? You've got people agreeing to it. They're agreeing to two totally different things. It doesn't make any sense. So it can never work. And that's why these general welfare arguments are so fundamentally flawed and complete jokes. Because like every other argument about the Constitution that goes on, the underlying assumption that we must follow it and that whatever happens from the Supreme Court is the law, that's where it all starts from. And when you actually do the analysis of it, like I do, it shows you that that can never happen. See, that can never happen because the government itself doesn't get set up when you have such incredibly fundamental disagreements about what the government can do and how it would work under the document. (laughs) There's really nothing more to it than that. And 
You'll see, I'm going to probably do a, a court case or so on these kinds of interpretations. And then I think I'm also going to show people the way this interstate commerce thing has been interpreted. Because spending power authority is probably used more than anything else now to justify all this spending that they do. This so-called spending power authority. They have the right to lay and collect taxes to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States and to pass all laws necessary and proper to do so. When you just turn it into that, when that's how it's read, then there's literally no limitation on it. And that's the way they do it. These omnibus kinds of things where they basically, basically take all your money, right? They take all the money, suck it all out of the state. And then what do they do? They only agree to give it back to you so long as you'll agree to these other things. And by doing that, they're not so-called regulating. They're just spending. They're just spending. But I just gave you the example of the license. Well, look, a million dollars a year. It's a million dollars a year to have a driver's license. They're not regulating driving. They're not regulating the issuance of a driver's license. Everybody's free to get one who pays a million dollars. It's a tax. It's a tax. See? What's the difference between that? It's nothing. The exact same thing can be done with any kind of, any kind of bill, any kind of uh, business, anything. Absolutely, pizza's not outlawed. They just have a tax on every pizza. It's $100 a pizza tax. You're going to have a pizza place? You're going to be able to operate a pizza place with a $100 tax on every pizza? course not. Well, they haven't regulated it. They haven't eliminated it. They didn't say you can't have pizza. See, that's the kind of nonsensical argument that they raise. And those are the kinds of arguments that get made all the time. And then you get seriously discussed because the constitutional conservatives always stay within this framework that we must obey and that we have to argue about what it all means and that it has to get settled by the court and whatever they tell us, then we're bound to. And they ignore this fundamental fact that Hey, if we don't agree about something this fundamental, the government itself is not legit. Not only have I never been able to vote on it, but nobody who ever voted on it can we ever know what that vote would have meant. It's impossible. No way to know what people were approving with document that's this so-called ambiguous, that you can have two completely and totally different interpretations of it. It doesn't work. There's nothing in the law that supports anything like this. And the only reason people find this stuff so amazing and shocking and outrageous and call me a conspiracy theorist nonsense is that they're so bombarded every single day and have been their whole life by this incredible pack of lies from so-called constitutional conservatives who just ignore these very, very fundamental problems with the concept of some kind of democratic republic under a constitution. And then they just want you to, everybody to argue about it because they make everything into policy. Anybody can see it, the giant bill they just passed. trillion, some additional shit to run us just through the end of September. It's got everything in the world in there. (laughs) I mean, it's just ridiculous how much shit's in there. But what do they argue about? Whether they should do it. Whether it was a good idea. Should they have voted on it? Not the fact that they have no authority to spend money for 99% of the stupid shit that's in there. None. No authority at all. And if they do have that authority, supposedly, if that's what they have, well, then... We have to have another vote on whether or not this Constitution is something anyone's going to agree to, if they're going to agree that they can just do all this stuff. But constitutional conservatives never bring those points up. The only answer they give you is to vote within the system that's already been set up and is running is there to screw you. (laughs) There's really nothing more to it than that, people. Every single problem always comes back to that same thing. 
People don't want to face it. They don't want to hear it because they've never heard this argument. They've never heard this very simple argument. But anybody whose mind's open will see that what I've said is just simply true. It's just true. There's no way around it. Because it doesn't matter if you buy my argument with regards to the obvious syntax and grammatical construction of that article, 1, Section 8, that the courts agreed to for the first, I don't know, 150 years of the so-called union, putting aside the Civil War and all the other nonsense. And they didn't even start entertaining such insane nonsense until uh, 1937. And then it all just flipped. And all their arguments started carrying water. How? How? Because it's all made up, people. See, it's all made up. It's just nonsense. Nothing you've been told about the Constitution, the way it works, anything else, is true. Just no part of it's true. So I hope this show has shown you what the so-called general welfare clause is and what so-called spending power authority is and where it comes from and how preposterous it is, how it basically just takes the first paragraph and the last paragraph and ignores everything in between and constructs a so-called governmental power from that. (laughs) It's idiotic. But of course, this is liberals. This is basically communists. These are people who want to rule every part of your life. And when you have a situation where only the top quarter of the people are really paying any income tax at all, and the top 10% are basically carrying the entire load, and that means that, in effect, the bottom 75% are not really paying much of anything. The bottom half pays nothing in income tax. When you have a situation like that, is it surprising that the government would grow, start spending money on all sorts of stuff? No. When you have a system where the only option is that you get to vote for red or blue and they're both completely corrupt, is it surprising that it continue gets worse? No, it's not surprising. It's not. It's expected. If you can look around the entire world and you can't find a single example of anybody in any country voting their way to more and more freedom and smaller and smaller government, you can't find it. And yet you're told that's supposedly how it works. And you're told that the problem is that you don't get organized enough. Well, I just showed you. The top quarter are the only people even paying income tax. No one else is even paying income tax. Yeah, they pay their Social Security, the Medicare, Medicaid crap, what they call payroll taxes, but they don't pay income tax. And tons of those people get all sorts of stuff back. And all these other businesses and the people who work for them and everything else, you can't get rid of it with the systems that they describe through this voting. It can never work. It's because it's not designed to do that. And the general welfare clause and spending power authority, the necessary and proper. Now you see what a complete and fundamental fraud it all is. I'll probably, like I said, do some show on some of the stuff that the courts have said about it. And you can see what they have to say. But I think that's a good start because it lays out all the basics and gives you, I think, irrefutable arguments that one, the initial construction is not being interpreted correctly because those are semicolons and a whole listing of things that the others just modify. And two, even if they want to say theirs is correct, ours is certainly correct, that it's enumerated limited uh, powers. And therefore, if they take the position that it's not, and we take the position it is in the most fundamental part of the document, which is what does the government have the authority to do? Well, then that's it. The document fails for ambiguity. And there's no meeting of the minds, and there's no consent of the people, and therefore the government has no authority whatsoever. That's it. There's no way around those arguments. You, you, you can back them into a corner, get them to agree whatever they want. It doesn't matter. Once you do the other, it's over. So, so that's it. I think that's all I'm going to say about it today. I hope it was entertaining. Uh, this show is going to come out on Christmas, so I hope everybody has a nice Christmas. And beyond that, 
if you want to follow me, you can. I'm Legal Man at U.S. Crime Review. The new Twitter has me fantastically restricted down and shadow banned in a million ways. I'm hardly getting any interaction. I got a lot more interaction when I was on private because I'm so crunched down now, even though they tell you that's not going to happen. It does happen. <laughs> so it's all just silly. It's all just completely ridiculous. But you can follow me if you want. And I want to thank the people who are on Patreon who support my show. I do appreciate that. They have a lot of integrity. You know, I spent a lot of time, effort, both learning all this stuff and then making the show and explaining it to people. And my show is basically very unique. The types of things I talk about, you just don't find anywhere else. You just don't. And so thank you to the people who kick skin in the game and make it worth my time to make the show. I appreciate it. As far as the movie, The Jones Plantation, I play Mr. Jones, written by Larkin Rose. It's still supposed to be out around the holidays. I'm still expecting it to be out over the next couple of weeks. I haven't spoken to Andrew in about 10 days or so, but get an update. But I know they're working on the audio, and I know they're busting their ass on it. So it'll be out, and it's going to be really entertaining. I really hope when it comes out, people support it. Buy it. Watch it. I think it's a great way to spread the word to some other people who might be open-minded, though the vast majority of people are never going to be able to hear the kinds of messages we have. So beyond that, I don't think there's anything else to say. I don't have that much energy. Tired. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. You guys have been a great audience as usual. Everybody have a nice night or day, wherever you are. Take care. Thank you, everybody. Let's put your hands together one more time. For legal man. Thanks so much. I get to check your service on the way out. More quash. More quash.